Uh, throughout this year, Lake Merced has been working our way through the Bible, from cover to cover, largely from Genesis to Revelation, looking to understand how God's story works, looking to understand how all these pieces and all these characters and places and kings and battles and wars, all that stuff fits together to form one cohesive narrative, one cohesive story in a series that we're calling Read Scripture in 2021. And so last week, we finished up the book of 2 Kings, which is one of the historical books of the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament as we've come to know it, where we encountered this, this moment of deep pain in the life of God's people. It was like one of those moments where mom or dad threatens they're going to take away something from you that you really, really love, or threatens to turn the car around if you don't shape up, if you don't change your behavior, and then they actually do it. It was like that moment for God's people. And so after all the good that God had done to bring his people into a good land, to help them build a good kingdom, to give them kings and prosperity and so much more, God finally moved to take all of it away. And God's chosen people, still deeply loved by him, were carried off into exile, defeated, and driven to live in a land that was not their own. And even the very dwelling place of God, God's temple, was burned to the ground. And so this week, and for the next four or five weeks, we're actually going to hit pause on advancing through that biblical timeline, if you will. We're not going to go forward. What we're going to do is we're going to begin to look at those events from a different perspective, that instead of looking at the historical books in Scripture, we're going to look at it from the perspective of the prophets. Now you ask, what is a prophet? Often we've kind of confused the role of prophet to be something like a fortune teller, somebody who, who knows the future. But that's not what a prophet is. Not in Scripture. A prophet is somebody who speaks to the people on behalf of God, often by warning them to change their behavior. And sometimes, with those warnings, will include references to what can happen or what will happen in the future if those warnings aren't heeded, if those words go ignored. And so to be prophetic is to speak boldly, to speak truths, often difficult truths, that often people don't want to hear. And frankly, speaking those truths can be personally costly to the people who have to speak them. And so you think about the life of Jesus and what it cost him on the cross. Jesus spoke prophetically. When you go into the book of Acts and you see the first Christian martyr named Stephen, you realize Stephen spoke prophetically. Many people would even say 500 years ago that Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door and he spoke prophetically. Or 50 or 60 years ago, as Martin Luther King Jr. spoke, that he was speaking prophetically. And so this week, as we get started, we're going to read somebody else who absolutely spoke prophetically. Someone that we know, beyond the shadow of a doubt, was a prophet of God. And so if you have your Bible handy, if you have your Bible app handy, I invite you to open up to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah is where we're going to be this morning. If you would like a Bible and you don't have one handy, there is a bookshelf there behind Austin. If Austin, you can raise your hand for me. There's a bookshelf. You can go get a Bible over there, and uh, we'll get started with a word of prayer. And as I often like to do, I just want to encourage you and invite you to, to picture yourself in the presence of a holy God, the maker of all that is. 
And so as we get started this morning, we can't move forward, we can't do anything well without God's blessing, without Him blessing the words that are spoken, the words that are heard, and the way that they affect our lives. And so I invite you where you are to stand, to, to raise hands, to kneel, to change your posture before a holy God. And uh, let's go to Him in a word of prayer. Father, we, we just come to You right now and we honor You as holy. We come here to glorify Your holy name. And I thank You for all the things that You do to bless us and to shape us and to show us what it, what it is to live this life well. And I also recognize, Father, that, that there's so much that You try to show us, so much that You want us to know, so much love that You want us to see and feel that just goes right over our heads. We, we can't even see it. We are so blind to what you do for us. And so this morning, as we, we prepare to get into your word and we look at, at the story of God's people from the prophet Isaiah, Father, I recognize that there's a lot going on here that applies to us, that applies to me. And so, Father, when, when we can't see what you're doing, when we're lost in the, in the midst of, of all the minutia and, and junk of life, Father, would you help us to see that you are there? Would you help us to trust and believe that you, you are, are in control, that you are working things out to your glory, to your benefit, to serve your ultimate purpose? That's my prayer. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and speak through me today. That's my, my only ask. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be in this place. In Jesus' holy name, amen. Well, as we uh, get started this morning, hopefully you had a chance to read the, the weekly email this week, so you're kind of already in this frame of mind a little bit. But have you ever experienced deep loss? Deep loss. I'm talking about the kind of loss that changes your life. The kind of loss that, that changes your future. The kind of loss that, that changes everything about who you are. Have you ever experienced that kind of loss? It's funny how when we're kids and we're young, our definitions and understanding of what, of what painful loss is can be very, very different from what we come to understand painful loss to be when we're older, right? Case in point, there's a picture of my son here. I got permission. He's a little embarrassed, but he gave me permission to show this. This was a handful of years ago on the last day of school. This is him in a, in a very painful moment because it's the last day of school. Most kids were celebrating. He was sad. And this is a moment. This is a painful loss for him because he's not going to see these people for, for 10 weeks or whatever it is. So thank you, Andrew, for courage to let me share that picture. Um, but it, it brings back memories of when I was young. Like when I was young and somebody stole my favorite football that I brought to school despite my mom's warnings not to do that. That felt deeply costly to me. And I grieved. When, I, when we moved out of houses that I enjoyed living in because they were home to me. That felt costly to me. I grieved. When I lost my dog suddenly and unexpectedly one Sunday afternoon after playing with him and he, he went and laid down in the grass and just never really got up. That was, that was deeply costly to me at the time. And yet, as I grow older and as I face my own mortality a little bit more each day, I recognize how much I love my wife and how much I love my kids and how much I love my parents and so much more. And I recognize that in a life where absolutely nothing is guaranteed. I'm not even guaranteed to get home after church today. 
Nothing is guaranteed. There is the potential every day for greater loss than I have ever experienced before in my life or could ever imagine. And I'm personally grateful that that kind of loss is not something that I have yet had to really walk through. And so in many ways, I feel kind of ill-prepared to speak to the deepest forms of loss because it's something that I know I personally have not dealt with a lot directly. And I also know, as many of you just raised your hands, and I know many of your stories, I know that some of you have. Some of you have walked through some very painful and hurtful times in your life. And so many of you know what it's like to look to a future that is completely foreign to your past. Many of you know what it's like to to have only memories of what must have felt like the, the very best of times. And so you celebrate those times that you enjoyed. You're thankful that you had those times. But you also grieve. You grieve and you wish that you could experience that, that you could do that all over again. Recently, uh, my son discovered a song. He's like, oh, Dad, have you heard this Maroon 5 song, Memories? Like, it's, it's great, but it's so sad. And I was kind of reflecting on that a little bit this, this week as there, there's a line in that song that I think speaks to this feeling directly. The song says, There's a time that I remember when I did not know no pain, when I believed in forever and everything would stay the same. Now my heart feels like December when somebody says your name because I can't reach out to call you. But I know I will one day. And I gotta say, I haven't felt the depth of pain. I know that, that some of you have felt. And for others sitting here, you haven't yet felt the depth of pain that I have felt. But that's the thing about pain and loss, is it doesn't really discriminate, does it? It's something that we all encounter. It's something that we all deal with. That, that you know, perhaps... It just, it, just, it just affects us all. And I've experienced enough in my life to know that when, when pain and grief is what you feel, the only anecdote, the only thing that helps you feel better is a sense of hope, a sense of, of, of good things still laying ahead, perhaps even better things than we left in our past. And so when you think of what we've all collectively endured this last year, right, cut off from church, cut off from friends, cut off from family, isolated to our homes. What is it that kept us going these last 12 or 13 months? It was the belief that this is only temporary. The trust that better days lay ahead. And when we watch in horror and shock at the the injustices suffered by our, our black American communities and our Asian American communities, we, we long for and hope for a better day when we are all treated, not just equally, but treated as the, the image bearers of God in heaven that we actually are. We, we, we believe that there's a better day that lies ahead, that, that that's what makes it all worth fighting for. That's the dream that Dr. King spoke of all those years ago. And so hope, hope is important. Would you agree with that? Hope matters. Hope is important. In fact, if you want a little exercise, I encourage you to go home, get on Google, and Google something like how to prepare for suffering, how to prepare for pain. One of the first things you'll notice is that almost everything that comes up is, is faith-based and more specifically Christian-based. Why? Because a secular community, by and large, isn't very interested in dealing with pain. They're interested in avoiding pain, not, not believing that it has to be endured by all of us. 
But second, when you finally do find something secular, what you'll realize or recognize is that psychologists are discovering and saying things that, that are basically the same truths that God's people have known and have lived and have understood for thousands of years. Case in point, here's an article written for Psychology Today by Dr. George Everly. He noted five core psychological or, or behavioral factors that resilient people possess, the people who deal with suffering, who deal with pain well. He said, number one, you got to have active optimism. Active optimism, the, the belief that life events will turn out well. Well, do you know what we call that, church? We call that hope. He said, number two, you got to have decisiveness, the, the ability to overcome paralysis by analysis and make difficult decisions. Well, what fuels our ability to make difficult decisions, to be decisive? Often it's faith and trust. He said, number three, you got to have a moral compass, the ability to evaluate someone's actions against a standard of honesty, a standard of integrity. Well, in order to have a moral compass, there has to be some understanding that things are objectively true or objectively false, objectively good or objectively bad. And friends, that's what we get in God's Word. It gives us a moral compass by which to live. Number four, he said you have to have tenacity. You've got to have the ability to persevere despite frustration, despite failure. And I've got to tell you, the New Testament loves the word perseverance. It uses that word 16 times. It was one of those themes that Paul the Apostle talked about all the time. Perseverance is critical to life success. And number five, he said you have to have interpersonal support, which is the inclination to create and utilize social support as a means of fostering personal and professional success and happiness. In other words, he's talking about you, the church. That's what all of you are. It's all about community. And so there's a reason that, that Jesus doesn't say, hey, I want everybody to stay home and study and make sure they have perfect theology. That's not what Jesus says. What did Jesus say? He said, no, I want you to go. I want you to make disciples. I want you to teach them. And I want you to love them. And so success always happens within the context of community. So what does all of this have to do with the book of Isaiah? What does all of this have to do with 2 Kings that we read last week? Well, Isaiah is a prophet of God who's being sent to speak some really, really painful, difficult truths to God's people before disaster strikes. It's on the horizon, it's coming, and now I've got some difficult things to say to you. And so he's talking to a people in chapter 5 who call evil good and good evil. He's talking to a people who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. A people who are heroes at drinking wine and, and champions and mixing drinks. A people who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. Which, when you kind of look at that list, you realize these are all pretty relatable things even to us, you know, thousands of years later. And so God looks at these people, and he's frustrated. He's angry. And he's finally angry enough that he's getting ready to act on his anger. He's, he's, he's well within his means. He's justified to take action. And so God reaches into obscurity, he finds Isaiah, and he calls on Isaiah to go and tell the people that destruction is coming, that pain and suffering are coming because they haven't learned yet any other way. 
And so at the end of chapter 6, this is kind of the great calling of Isaiah. It's the last verse. God says to Isaiah, But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be a stump in the land. And it reminds me a little bit, as I reflect on that language of, of time that I've spent at some of the, the giant redwood groves that are peppered throughout the state of California. Hopefully you've been to some of those. I don't know if you've been to Calaveras Big Trees. But if you get to, ever get to go to Calaveras Big Trees, as you arrive to the visitor center, one of the things that you'll notice or immediately encounter is this massive stump. In fact, in the picture above from several years back, my family is standing on that stump. You can take steps up to walk onto it, walk around on it, and otherwise just stand and marvel as you're there at what once was. What once stood in that place at this tree with a diameter that's 20 plus feet in diameter that, that was hundreds of feet tall now sits there and it's, and it's only a stump, only a remnant of what used to be, only a memory. And so that word remnant is a word that I want you to pay particular attention to today because it's a really, really important word. It's a word that I want you to remember because it's a word that's going to show up over and over and over again in this portion of Scripture. But remnant is that little bit of something that's left behind. It's like if you, if you take your oatmeal to the sink and you pour it out, kind of like in this picture, the, the remnant is that stuff that sticks to the inside that's really, really hard to wash off. If you don't wash it immediately, it's like glue, right? And it seems good for nothing. It's not enough to eat. It's not enough to enjoy. It's just there. And, and that is what the stump of a great tree is like. It seems good for nothing. It's just there. You just marvel at what once was. It's what's left. It's like a Chernobyl. It's like a Fukushima in Japan. There's just a remnant. But when God speaks those words to Isaiah, it's actually a clue. Last week, hopefully you're, you're doing your daily reading. Last week we read through 2 Kings. And in two particular places in 2 Kings, something was said that was so small, so seemingly insignificant, and I think that's kind of the point. But as God's people are conquered, and they're carried off into a foreign land in exile, as they lose everything, as they grieve over what was, what's interesting to note is not everybody is carried off. 2 Kings 24 says, only the poorest people of the land were left. The very next chapter, chapter 25, verse 12, says that the commander left behind some of the poorest people of the land to work and take care of it and so on. And so here in the midst of this great tragedy, here in the midst of great devastation, what's interesting is that not everybody is cut down. Not everybody is cut off. Who is left behind? Well, it's the good-for-nothings. It's the people who have no power, who have no perceived value, who have no money, who have no possessions, the people who are like the residue on the inside of a bowl of oatmeal. They're just the remnant. They're the stump. And it says, actually, without that remnant, God's kingdom, God's people would have become like Sodom and Gomorrah. They would have been completely destroyed. 
So this remnant matters. But I want you to think about a stump. Get that imagery of a stump in your mind. What is a stump to a tree? A stump is that, that part that you pay the least attention to. The part that you're most inclined to forget is even there. And yet, it's the part of the tree that keeps everything else standing. The, the, the beautiful canopy of a tree is nothing without its stump. It is nothing without the foundation. And so, yes, what God is getting ready to do is cut off everything that's beautiful. Cut off everything that you see. Everything that makes you say, wow. Everything that people look and marvel at. Their kingdom is gone. Their kings are gone. Their temple is gone. But do you know what still remains? It's the stump. It's the stump. The foundation is still there. And so as King Ahaz, the king of Judah, faces what will soon become the end of his kingdom, God sends him Isaiah. And interestingly enough, he also sends Isaiah's son to go along with him. And the message is this to King Ahaz. Hey, be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Do not lose heart. And that's a great message. That's a true message. But what you don't see, unless you're reading the footnotes in your Bible, is that just beneath the surface is a second message, a hidden message, a subtle message found in the very name of Isaiah's son, Shir Jashub, which means a remnant will return. And so God said to King Ahaz, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. And so he says to Ahaz, he says, Ahaz, just ask me for a sign. I dare you. Ask me for a sign. I said, I don't, I don't care whether it's in the deepest depths or the highest heights. Ask me. Ask me for a sign. And Ahaz says, no, God, I'm not going to ask you. I'm not going to test God like that. And so God, clearly irritated, says, are, are you really, really going to try my patience right now, Ahaz? Have you not learned this is a foolish thing? He's like, forget it. I'm going to give you a sign anyway. And here it is. The virgin, or the young woman, will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. We'll call him God with us. Now, if you and I have been around the Christmas story at all, and we have, there's a chance that these words are words that immediately make you jump and go like, yes, I know what he's talking about. And you do. At the same time, it's important to, to grow in our understanding and recognize that we can't just jump to the back of the math book and look at the answer because the reality is those words have a double meaning. Those words mean something else at this point in time to King Ahaz and to Isaiah because the word here that was used where we usually translate it virgin can also mean young woman. And the child that is being spoken of was a future child born to Isaiah and to his wife. And we actually see that happen in the very next chapter, in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 3. But as Christians, with the benefit of hindsight, we see something else at work here, don't we? We see something else. We see something powerful. We see the work of a chess grandmaster who is moving just the right pawn into just the right place at just the right time to, to move toward checkmate, even though, even though checkmate is 30 moves away. We're nowhere clear, nowhere close to checkmate. God is setting up the, the ultimate win. He's saying something that nobody is ready to understand. 
And yet, why should Ahaz be careful? Why should Ahaz keep calm? And why should Ahaz not be afraid? It is because of Emmanuel, because of God with us. The God with us is on the way. And so Isaiah says, in those days, when you guys are going through all of this, all this pain, all this sorrow, everything that's getting ready to come your way, he said, you're going to look around, and the only thing you're going to see is gloom. The only thing you're going to see is distress and hunger and darkness and all of that stuff. And people are going to look to the heavens, and they're going to curse their king, and they're going to curse God, and they're not going to understand anything. And yet Isaiah shows us a better way to endure those hard times. He says this, he says, as for me, I will wait. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Why? Why does he say that? It's because Isaiah knows. And Isaiah understands that there is hope. And hope makes all the difference in the midst of suffering. I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 9. Beginning in verse 1, here's the hope that Isaiah begins to speak to. He says, There will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. You know, in the past, he humbled the land. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. And so the people who are walking in darkness, he said, they have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness a light has dawned. He says, you have enlarged the nation. You have increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the, the bar across their shoulders, the, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. But verse 6 is where it all changes. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. And of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Think about how meaningful these words would be to somebody who's lost everything. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. And how do we know this is going to happen? Because the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And so the question I want you to consider is, what is the message that Isaiah is sharing here? What is the hope that he's speaking of? He says that in, in chapter 10, verse 24, he says, my people who live in Zion. Well, who lives in Zion? It's not the people who were exiled, not the people who were carried away. Who's living there right now? It's the remnant. It's the good for nothings. He's talking to them. My people who live in Zion, do not be afraid of the Assyrians who beat you with a rod and lift up a club against you as Egypt did. Because very soon... My anger against you will end, and my wrath will be directed to their destruction. Verse 33, watch this. So he says, See, 
the Lord, the Lord Almighty, will lop off the boughs. With great power, the lofty trees will be felled. The tall ones will be brought low, and he will cut down the forest thickets with an axe. Lebanon will fall before the mighty one. What's he saying? He's talking about the powerful, the oppressors. He says, all of them will fall. And then watch what happens next. This is chapter 11, verse 1. He says, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and of understanding. The spirit of counsel and of might. The spirit of the knowledge of the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And I know we just covered a lot of material there, and it's all kind of very symbolic, but I'm curious, do you, do you see the picture? Can you picture the forest and the trees and the stumps and all the stuff that Isaiah is talking about? Do you see the symbolism? That from the remnant, from the stump, from the good-for-nothings, He's saying the Lord will bring a branch that bears good fruit. From the, from the ashes of destruction comes new growth, new life, a new shoot, a new branch. He says from the root of Jesse. Who's Jesse? Jesse is King David's father. From the root of Jesse, from the root of the father of King David comes a new king. And here's what Isaiah says. This is chapter 11, verse 10. That in that day, the root of Jesse will stand as a banner for the peoples. The nations will rally to him and his resting place will be glorious. Say glorious. Glorious. Church, if the words of Isaiah teach us anything, if they reveal anything, if they remind us of anything, it's this. That when all I, I can see when I look around is doom and gloom, God makes this future where ashes can bloom. Let's say that again. When all I can see is doom and gloom, God sees something else. And God is making a future where dead things, where ashes can come to new life, where they can bloom. Church, sometimes we are so enveloped in darkness, so overcome with grief and pain and sorrow that, that we can't see beyond our present circumstances. We can't see even that little pinhole of light that might be there, that at the height of our pain, sometimes it can feel like there will never be joy again, like I can never possibly smile again or laugh again or delight in anything again. Because all we can see when we look around are the fallen trees and the ashes of the once beautiful forest that we lived in and called home. This life that we had built for ourselves. Sometimes we can't help but just look in the rearview mirror. We can't even see out the windshield. We're just looking in the rearview mirror. And that's all we see. That's all, that's all we, can, we can deal with. We, we can't see what can be. We only see what was. And so Isaiah was speaking to a people who were, who were getting ready to lose everything. He was speaking to a Chernobyl 35 years ago. He was speaking to... Uh, New Orleans, 16 years ago. He was speaking to a Fukushima 10 years ago or a Paradise, California, two years ago. He was speaking to a community when all hope seemed lost 
And the message that God had for the people through him was not a grandiose display, but it was a gentle nudge, a subtle whisper that said, be careful, keep calm, fear not, stand firm, and wait for the Lord. In other words, it was a, it was a call to look down and see the stump and see that little shoot, that little bit of green, that little bit of new growth and trust that from that shoot, from that, that little bit of something, God can do amazing things. I got to tell you, ministry has afforded me a lot of opportunities to, to be present in people's lives, to see the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, and I got to tell you, that there's so many stories that I could tell of God bringing new growth and new life from the ashes and the pain and the sorrow that people feel. I think of people like my friend Ryan, who when I met him was, was just getting over meth addiction, prison time, uh, estrangement from his daughter, a felony on his record. And I got to watch as he became a baptized believer, as, a, as he became a successful homeowner with a clean record and a renewed relationship with his daughter. And there are so many stories like his. I, I shared in, in this week in the email the story of my cousin and what he's been through a little bit. Stories that continue to remind me that what was true for the people, what was true for the community in Isaiah is still true for us. It's still true for our community of believers as the church and even true for us as individuals. That God is the master of taking what is, what is left over, what is worthless, what is but a crumb and a remnant and making something magnificent out of it. God is a master at doing that. And so you may feel sometimes like a shell of who you used to be. You may feel like a shell of who you want to be. You may feel broken or enslaved to addiction or cut off from the people you love. But church, I want to tell you, as long as you have breath in your lungs, there is a remnant there, a remnant that God can, can work with, that God can bring life out of. And out of your ashes, out of your pain, out of your sorrow, whatever they may be, he brings new life. He brings hope. He brings a future. That when I look around at my life and all I can see right now is doom and gloom, God sees, God makes a future where new life where can bloom, where ashes can bloom. It's not something that I do in my life. It's not something that you do in your life. It's something that God does and God gets all the glory for it. But I want you to see that even in the midst of pain, God has not abandoned you. He has not abandoned us. And so when you look at this story and you read Isaiah, I want you to see that Jesus is the Emmanuel. Jesus is the God with us character. Jesus is the child who was born to us and given to us. Jesus is the shoot from the stump. Jesus is the root of Jesse. And it is in Jesus whom we find glorious rest because it is Jesus who turns water into fine wine. It is Jesus who takes a few small breadcrumbs and a fish and feeds the multitudes. It is Jesus who brings dead things to life. And so you may feel sometimes as good as dead. Sometimes you, you may wish that you were dead. But Jesus sees past our pain. He sees past our suffering. And he sees a remnant. And he offers to bring that remnant to life. It's what he does. It's no coincidence that Jesus' very first words when he started his ministry, the very first things he says in Matthew's gospel were this. 
Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom. Do you know what he's saying? He's saying, blessed are the poor. Blessed are the remnants. Blessed are the good-for-nothings. Blessed are the powerless. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the persecuted. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so there is rest for the weary. There is rest for you. There is a future for you, even you, that is bright and new. And there is life for you, even from the ashes. Even when all you look and see are doom and gloom. When all I can see is doom and gloom. God sees, God makes a future where the ashes of my life can come alive and bloom. And so I invite you to that future this morning. I invite you to new growth and you can receive this Jesus who brings life out of the remnant, who brings life up from the ashes. And so if you feel stuck in your pain this morning, whatever it may be, Jesus offers you new life. Whether you receive him or not is up to you. That's your choice. But if you'd like to receive him, you can be baptized into him. You can be raised to a new life with him. And you can find your future once and for all, forevermore. And so where you stand, where you sit right now, I invite you to stand right now. We're going to sing here in just a moment. I invite you to stand. I'm going to speak this blessing over you that I've been speaking for weeks. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face toward you and give you peace. Out of the ashes of your life, God can bring new life. And uh, I invite you to that today. If you'd like to receive Christ as your Lord, your King, and your Savior, you can speak to me during this song or after service today. But let's stand, let's sing, let's praise God. Thank you, church.